Hi, I'm Bailey. And I'm Serena. Welcome to Creative Baggage, a podcast that gets into the nitty-gritty of pursuing an artistic career. In this episode, we talk to our former professor, Dr. Ted Latham, about the factors that influenced his decision to pursue music theory over musical theater. We address topics such as work-life balance, the importance of collaboration, and our sensitivity to performance environments. We are honored to have Dr. Latham as our teacher and guest. My name is Dr. Ted Latham, and I have been a professor at Temple for 20 years. I came here from Minnesota, where I took my first job at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. I'm a transplanted New Englander. I'm a Yaley, did all my degrees there, undergrad and grad, and uh, have three kids. And my wife and I live out on the main line, the western suburbs of Philadelphia. When I was in school, when I was in junior high and high school, I definitely thought I was going to be a Broadway star, a big singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did every show that came out. I think at one point in high school, I might have done like 12 a year. So I was doing tons of shows and uh, doing a lot of singing. And I was dating a girl who wanted to be an actress. So, you know, we would go into Boston for auditions and stuff. So that was definitely where I was headed. But I had a really great AP music theory teacher my senior year of high school was an Eastman grad, but we won't hold that against him. <laughs> and, uh, and then when I went to Yale, um, it was still a toss-up. I had a couple of experiences uh, in my first couple of years of undergrad that kind of steered me more toward academics. So um, there was a big Broadway director that came in uh, to direct West Side Story, and I was up for the lead across from a woman who has since gone on to win multiple Tony Awards. She's a big Broadway Mm -hmm. star now. So I thought, this is it. This is going to be my big break. (laughs) And he pulled me in after the audition to say that I was the best singer, but I didn't look like Tony. So he wasn't going to cast me in the part. So that got me thinking about, you know, the fact that it's not just your talent and ability. It's how you look, too. And, you know, it's the whole package. And, um, when I met my current, uh, when I, my current wife, I only have one. <laughs> when, I, when I met my wife, um, she was in Broadway too. She was doing musical theater. Um, and I saw what the life was like for her. And I really didn't want that, especially not uh, if we started a family. It's just mm. a crazy life. They're always on the road, you know, moving from place to place and living from paycheck to paycheck. So it's just, it's not a great life for a family. Mm. And most of the people we worked with uh, didn't have families for that reason. So it's kind of a lonely life in that way. Has um, any of that come back around to help you as a theorist in any way? Like, do you ever think like, hmm, I'm glad I I went down that path? That's a funny question to ask me. So um, yes and no. So musical theater... (laughs) um, it's changing a lot. It's changed a lot within the last five years, but generally speaking, musical theater is looked down on by the music theory right. world. You know, um, sort of like operetta, so simplistic, um, right. you know, not, not enough sophistication, not enough complexity for music theory. Certainly not true in the case of some of the composers that I like. But, um, you know, that, I think that's changing, that those opinions are changing. But it has certainly helped to be a singer, I mean, I use that all the time in class. And um, it's actually helped me a lot more outside of Temple. So I still do a lot of performing and a lot of singing, just not really at Temple. Although I will say, several of my colleagues have been really generous in that regard. Larry Indyk in particular, I have to shout out, and Charlie Abramovic, 
Those two are amazing. And they have given me a lot of performing opportunities that I wouldn't other, otherwise have had at Temple. And uh, Alan Harler before he retired too, and Paul Reardon. So yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something I keep up with. Um, it's just not as even a part of my life as it was before. It's probably 20%, 30% instead of 50-50 or something. Mm. Interesting, yeah. You know, I think it's so common that young people have their sights set on a like a very specific path, like, oh, I want to be principal clarinetist of this orchestra, or I want to be on Broadway. And I think it's a your story is a nice example of it can change and it can change in a great way because you wanted a family, you knew that. Um, and you don't see it as like a loss or, or like a failure, I'd assume, you know? I don't, yeah. I mean, there was a time I missed it. I really mm. did miss being on stage. It's hard to substitute the adrenaline of that. I mean, it's yeah. really fun to, you know, assume a character and, and it's like playtime. That's what my wife always called it too when she was acting <laughs> on Broadway. You know, it's like getting paid to play. So it's, it's a pretty great field of work in that way. But what I, you know, what I didn't appreciate at the time, but grew to appreciate later, is all the other aspects, the peripherals. You know, like university professors have a great schedule mm. and it's really conducive to having a family. So, you know, you have flexibility in your summers, you have evening flexibility. It's not a typical nine to five. So, you know, there are a lot of things you can structure schedule wise that you can't with other jobs where you punch the clock. So um, I really have appreciated that, especially when I had my first daughter, my, um, my oldest. I was still a graduate student, so I was at the park with her, with Aww. all the moms, you know, <laughs> and me. And it was so cool because I was the only dad, you know, and I had that ability because I could, I could schedule the time I was going to work on my dissertation for certain hours. And, you know, so we spent a lot of time at the library and stuff. It was great. Really nice. I think we really do glorify, especially in performance and all different aspects of performance, even performance outside of music, is this like idea that you have to give your whole life to your art and wherever the work is, you have to go and whatever it takes, you have to do. And I think that that really neglects like all other aspects of our lives that we might want or need. I agree. I think that plays into the tortured artist kind of paradigm, you know, that you're sacrificing, always sacrificing, and that's going to somehow make your art better and more relatable. And, you know, that all comes from, you guys know, because you took all the classes, and that all comes from post-Beethovenian, you know, like, (laughs) it has to be, it has to be torture. But I I don't know. I mean, I, I know plenty of happy people that make great art, too, and they have balance in their lives. And, you know, it's... It's more about what works for you. I think different things work for everyone. I definitely know people mm-hmm. who are 100% dedicated to it and that works for them and they're amazing too. So do you see any ways in which like, your prioritizing family life that actually gave you a leg up or benefited you in musically that maybe somebody who gave up their personal lives might not have? 100%. 100%. And um, that's a great question. So... Basically, what happened to me is because I had what I would consider a broader perspective or a more humanistic perspective or whatever you want to call it, an openness to the other elements of life beyond just um, laser focus 
on um, this particular narrow career that you know I could have chosen for myself. Other opportunities have been showered on me from almost from day one. So because I met my wife and I was open to uh, marrying her, raising a family, having that whole aspect um, of my life, she is a powerhouse. So we became, you know, much stronger as a couple and all kinds of job, job opportunities have come my way through her, you know, just because uh, of how powerful she is, how amazing she is. So probably the most concrete example of that would be church work on the weekends, church mm. music work. And that's a big part of how I stay involved in performance. A um, lot of conducting, a lot of singing, a lot of playing. And, um, and, and also opportunities through school, you know? So I think that's one, that's one way that having a more well-rounded portfolio, for lack of a better word, you know, personality portfolio or life portfolio uh, has really benefited me. And I, I had to work on my people skills. One, mm. one thing that I think academics neglect, you know, we're not, we don't offer classes in it is how to get along with all different kinds of people. And, and that's something that church work really does teach you. People of all levels of ability, all socioeconomic classes, you know, all levels of introvert and extrovert, you know, <laughs> you just have to learn how to get along and work with and collaborate with lots of different kinds of people. And that was such a valuable skill that it did not come easily or naturally to me. I had to work on it. And it was something that I didn't cultivate as a student at all. Mm. I mean, I was really much more focused on, you know, scholarship and, and my academics. And it was very, it's a very, it can be a very introverted life um, for a scholar. So I really made a conscious effort to work on them. And that yielded a lot of benefits too. I was able to get a lot of professional opportunities because I was easy to work with mm. uh, that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, I like that you bring up that sometimes like joining forces with someone or collaborating with other people can make the art and the music better in ways that you wouldn't expect because there's such a focus in classical music on like, I'm doing this by myself in the practice room. And even for chamber music, even for ensemble, the expectation is it starts with you in the practice room, figuring out how to play it by yourself before you get to rehearsal and put it together with everyone. But like something really special comes out of making music or making art or coming up with ideas with other people from the beginning. And I think that's why Bailey and I have done so much together is because we're always just like sitting in each other's apartments, talking out random ideas that we have. And like a lot of them aren't lucrative. But when we came up with like this podcast, it was just from us doing what we always did anyways and complaining about the things we didn't like about music and talking about ideas we had for the future and just like fleshing out our thoughts and our feelings. Um, and I think that that's not something that I would have been able to come up with by myself because it's not like you need sometimes to be able to bounce off of what other people have to say. I totally agree. Collaboration is really the key. And, and again, I had to learn that. I was really a lone wolf when I was a student. I, you know, mm -hmm. did not play nicely with others. And, um, you know, once I, once I started, I think I really do credit the, well, the university community will teach you that too, if you, if you allow it to, you know, if you really engage. But 
outside of that, you know, on the weekends, doing the church work really helped with that too. And, and a concrete example of what you're talking about, Serena, is, you know, when I give three, three or four times a year, I give a wedding workshop and all the brides come and Aww. they listen to, you know, examples of what they could pick for their wedding. And we have, at, you know, at the parish where I work, we have, well, they're all Temple DMA grads. That's the people <laughs> that I hire. So we have um, a Temple DMA oboist, violinist, trumpeter. And when I present to the brides, I say, really, if you have the financial resources, you should hire all these people. And I explain to them exactly what you just said, that, you know, each of us is a great musician, but we're much stronger together. If you hire all of us, we're going to bounce off of each other. We're going to add extra desk hands. It's going to be... We're going to inspire each other during the course of the wedding and you will get a much, much better product than you would have. I mean, it'll be a great product with just one, but it will be much better exponentially if you hire multiple. Yeah, and the other thing that was funny for me is that I really had to learn to reincorporate emotion into my playing because, you know, when I was on stage, I, I definitely would sing with emotion, you know, that's all about that. But then when I went into scholarship and academia, I felt like I should be left brain and logical and sort of, <laughs> you know, um, and turn that part of me off. So then when I started the church work, I had to sort of reincorporate that again. And I didn't realize what a difference it would make until I, I was coming out of the weekend just exhausted. Why am I so tired? Why am I sort of wrung out? You know, I felt wrung out. And then I realized that it was because you're pouring so much of yourself into the plane, you know, your, your heart and soul, you're pouring your emotion into it. And, um, and that that's an okay thing to do. You have to replenish, you have to recharge your batteries, but it's an okay thing to allow that in. Um, I remember one time my wife was taking a private lesson for uh, accompanying and the teacher was saying, why are you playing with so much pedal? You know, it's so much pedal. And she said, but this is how it feels. You know, this is, this is what I'm trying to convey. And, uh, and that's when I realized it's really hard for church musicians because they really are playing with their hearts on their sleeves and that you have to sort of balance uh, technique and emotion both. Mm. Yeah. I think that being vulnerable on stage is a lot of the times the whole point though, right? It's like, I guess you could go on stage to like impress people and make people think that you're really cool and you can play really fast notes or like really loud or something. But art from like an artistic point of view, like having your art resonate with people because they can relate to how you feel is what you're doing on stage, right? Like you're trying to inspire or compel in some way. Yep. I totally agree with that. It just doesn't come to me automatically, so I have to really think about giving myself permission, you know, mm. to do that. And one of the things that's helped me, so this is a fun fact about me that you might not know. So I, I work with a different group every night. So on Wednesday nights, I work with um, a Broadway choir, a mainline choir. Um, and for one of our recent concerts, they asked me to do a solo number. You know, they wanted some variety. They didn't want all ensembles. So it had been a while, right, since I had done a, a big Broadway tune. But I did Anthem from Chess, which is so emotional. And, uh, yeah, I just had to give myself permission, um, not be afraid that it was going to affect the, you know, the note or, mm. you know, the, the pitch or anything. But really try to maintain good technique but allow the emotion in. And it was fun. It was hard. But it was really fun and, and worthwhile. So... Do you feel like it's harder 
to or easier to do that when you're playing with people like I'm gonna guess that it might be easier for you to be vulnerable when you're playing with other people on stage I think that's true that's true or the context makes a difference too like one thing I've noticed now this might be something you guys could speak to more having a, a real variety of performance experiences but if I'm if I'm performing in the evening that makes a big difference mm. if it's dark outside you know or um, we used to do these, I actually invited Dr. Folio and Dr. Brinkman to come and do Taizé services with me, which are evening prayer services, very chant-like, very repetitive, very meditative, you know, the candles everywhere and it's dark out. Mm. So that was, that was probably the most successful I've been at, you know, giving myself permission to let the emotion in, in that kind of a context. Huh. But yeah, if I'm, if I'm soloing and it's, uh less of an intimate context if there's a if there's a big audience i'm mainly focused on technique I, mm. I have to say i don't think my technique is good enough that i can forget about it really and uh, and just go on emotion but you're right i mean if you're working with other people um that does help although i'm aware of what they sound like too like i'm talking <laughs> they sound really good okay. <laughs> I like that you brought up environment, too, because I think that classical music is only in, like, a few settings, or, like, we only think of it in a few settings, and I saw an ad on Facebook for, I don't even know where this is, but it was just, like, candlelight concert Schubert or something, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea, like, turn all the lights off in the hall and put candles around the piano and see what happens, um, and I've noticed that, like, not just time of day, but, like, how we're dressed makes a difference in, like, how you feel, and, like, I don't know, for me, like, I kind of try to pair my dresses with, like, what I'm playing, and it makes a difference in my head that, like, this dress feels like Nielsen, or that dress feels like Sanson, and then I am more inspired to, like, play the music, or that specific music, the way that I want to. I love that. I love that. I saw that post too about the Schubert. It right away made me think of the Taizé I was telling you about. Same idea, mm. definitely. And I, I really wished I could go to that. I don't get out to too many things, but that that would have been super fun to go to. And I was I was into it for that reason too. <laughs> and yeah, you're right. Yeah, I gave a, a presentation early on when I got to Temple years ago now. I forget how many years, maybe 10, 15 years ago, about, um, it was the, was it a teaching award presentation? And because I couldn't talk about content, because I was talking to everyone in Boyer, not just music theory, I talked about environment and, you know, and, and approached it like a, like a actor, like a performer. Costume is important. Lighting is important. Mm. Staging is important. You know, all of that stuff makes a difference. And uh, I remember one of the most uh, enjoyable concerts I gave as a choral performer was with Mark Dorries, who was a choral conducting uh, graduate student at Temple a bunch of years ago. He's at Indiana now, I think. But he uh, put together a group to perform at the Fringe Festival, and we were in black t-shirts and jeans, and I had never performed a concert like that, <laughs> ever. You know, it was always tuxedo or coat and tie. And you're absolutely right. It was a totally different feel, different experience, and it did affect the singing, too. Mm. You definitely sang in, in a, you know, you didn't abandon technique, but you did sing with more freedom. For yeah sure. I think one um, of my least favorite ways to like perform or play is like when people have master classes and it's just in a regular old classroom and it's like during the day so you don't have time to like change or prepare 
because there's just no separation from like me walking around the school or like getting lunch and me giving this presentation that I'm supposed to like put a lot into um and just like I want to just change my clothes just being able to switch gears like that and being in an environment that's somewhat different from what you're normally used to like it makes such a difference like we kind of have to separate performance from that is a great point I wish I had known that back in the day because the only time I ever really got nervous I, I don't usually get nervous to perform and I know performance anxiety is a really big deal for a lot of people. But um, I think I always felt like because I wasn't a performer first and foremost, the stakes were lower, so I could just sort of <laughs> let it rip, you know? I, it didn't define who I was as a person, so uh, I've really used that to my advantage. But the only time I got nervous was in exactly that situation like you described, during the daytime, in a classroom, um, in front of my peers, performing yep. a composition I had written, and I got so nervous that my my sustain pedal foot was shaking so badly I couldn't sustain. Mm. And that was just the craziest experience. Like, what is happening? <laughs> I, I couldn't even play. It was nuts. I mean, so you're right. I mean, it makes a difference. If you think about it, I'm, I'm going to connect it again to musical theater. Like, when you're in a show, talk about set and, and setting. Like, you're physically in it. And I think that's why they, you know, um, Broadway stars, when you see like a great show, that like sense of like they are that character and they're completely letting loose is because they have every single element around them is controlled. And it's not that they choose it, but like if you're going to be, I don't know, Mary Poppins, like the set is going to look like what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like, I don't know, I'm someone who's very visual um so i have to or i want to always be in control when i perform of what the hall looks like and i think a lot of musicians forget that and it's it's okay to use our creative sides to... yeah especially now i mean think about we're almost forced to do that now <laughs> i mean with all of the collaborations that i did this summer with videographers and you know trying to create virtual choirs and yeah i mean the visual element is key after only about a month, I think I had done maybe five or ten of these virtual choirs, and you know what they look like. They look like what this looks like, Zoom windows, you know? <laughs> and, um, and the focus for me was always on making it sound good, like mixing and mm -hmm. making sure the balance was right, and oh, this person's cutoff wasn't right. So my focus was totally on what it sounded like, and I joined this group of other people doing the same stuff, and right away their first comment was, oh, have you thought about incorporating, you know, video elements? And, you know, it was all about the visual. Windows are boring. People don't want to just watch people singing on their screen. So it, it was a totally different perspective. Like, okay, fine, it sounds good, good for you. But, you know, you need to think about the visual. So ever since then, my focus has been on, you know, incorporating different elements, different snippets of video, just to give people something visually interesting to look at too. The two things people could look for are womenssacredmusicproject.org. So that's a group that I work with. Um, we partnered with the Young Women Composers Camp at Temple, and so we're commissioning new pieces by women. Um, and so that might be interesting, given the host of this podcast. I thought I would plug womenssacredmusicproject.org. Um, it's very cool, very um, good work being done. 
and hopefully Dr. Folio will write a commission for us. We'll see. I'm working on her. Um, and then maybe if you want to see some of the performance work I'm doing, you could go to mainlinesingers.org. Uh, that's a pretty good site that shows a couple of concert photos and, you know, I think there are probably some virtual choir videos up there. And I have a YouTube uh, channel, so that would be Edward D. Latham. I guess you have to put spaces in between. Edward <laughs> D. Latham. Yeah, so I put most of my virtual choirs up there if you want to see them.